Hello listeners, welcome to HIV in Focus, a podcast series created by Gilead Sciences to explore the most pressing issues for people living with HIV and provide practical bite-sized tips for clinicians from experts in the field. I'm Dr. Naomi Sutton, I'm a sexual health consultant working in Rotherham and I've been lucky enough to have a number of media roles including the sex clinic on E4 and I always try to use these platforms to educate and um, well ideally reduce stigma and actually stigma is the uh, topic of the podcast today and I am totally delighted to welcome Susan Cole. We've chatted a number of times in the past. Susan please introduce yourself. Hi Naomi, I'm absolutely thrilled to be chatting with you um, today. So uh, my name is Susan Cole. I work for the HIV information charity NAM AIDS Map and I lead their broadcasting and community engagement activities. But I've worked in HIV, oh my goodness, for about 20 years. And I'm also a member of the 4M network of mental mothers and a founding member of the Global HIV Collaborative. So Susan, let's start off with defining what stigma is and the different types of stigma that we can talk about. Thanks, Naomi. Yeah, really great question. Um, Stigma uh, is the the negative attitudes about HIV someone may hold. Often that's fueled by just really not having the correct information. And there are different types of stigma. It can be the stigma that someone holds themselves within themselves. So the self-stigma in terms of how they feel um, themselves about living with HIV. There can be the perceived stigma, the stigma someone thinks that they're going to face from other people. Um, Often that doesn't actually come to pass, but it can still be really concerning. And then also there is the actual stigma, the the discrimination um, and the negative attitudes that people face um, um, from other people, sometimes uh, in healthcare settings, sometimes in, in employment. And stigma can have a really devastating impact on the lives of people living with HIV. So loads and loads of work within this field that we're talking about, which is because stigma, as we're going to explore, is really the most pressing issue possibly for people living with HIV now, because we know it's a treatable, chronic, manageable infection. Everyone sitting here listening will know the medical side of it and will also be very aware of the stigma. So Susan, can you share your story as a woman living with HIV about your experience of this? Maybe start from when you were diagnosed sure yes I mean um I was diagnosed through a routine HIV test in America uh, like an immigration test I just got married to my second ex-husband I've had three ex-husbands so far I've had some handbags longer than some of my husbands but uh there you go and um it just didn't cross my mind for a moment that the result could ever come back as positive. I I was conscious of HIV from the tombstone and iceberg campaigns that we had in the UK, but I just didn't think it would be anything that would ever affect me. And um, the way I received my diagnosis was, um, you know, I I wouldn't say ideal. The, um, The immigration doctor said to me, well, the good news is you don't have syphilis. And I was like, yay. But the bad news is you're HIV positive. And my children were only 
um, I think they were like five and seven at the time. So the, the first question I asked was, well, how long do you think I've got to live? And he said, oh, uh, about seven years or so. So, I mean, you can imagine as a mum what that felt like hearing that it was unlikely that I would live to see my um, my children uh, grow up. So that's how I received my diagnosis. And obviously, maybe we should go back a little bit and define what stigma is, because there's different types of stigma, isn't there? There's internalised stigma, perceived stigma, and I guess real stigma. Would you say that you had an element of self-stigma when you received that diagnosis? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I think quite a lot of my self-stigma came about really just by not knowing as much as I should about HIV. I think for lots of people, we just don't know much about it until it somehow affects us either professionally or personally. But my coping mechanism that really helped me with my self-stigma was actually to find out everything that I could about HIV. And even though I was living in rural Louisiana at the time, so you can imagine what that was like, but I uh, I actually got um, information from NAM AIDS map. So even though this was like 20, 24 years ago, I, I got info from NAM AIDS map. And I actually realized that you know the information that I was given was wrong that actually I could expect to have uh, like a, live a long time. I know now that I can expect to have a normal life expectancy. And I also realised that I could have children, more children born free of HIV, which I have had. I've now got two grumpy teenagers who are 17 and, and 14 and, and uh, HIV, uh, HIV negative. But I think information about the reality of HIV was absolutely key for me in terms of dealing with uh, with my personal self-stigma. So thinking about other forms of stigma, so perceived stigma, how, how do you think that's changed over the course of well, the last 20 years? I think that, that we have come on, you know, things have really improved. I think very often uh, in terms of perceived stigma, sometimes people think that if they tell them about their HIV status, they're going to be stigmatising. And I've definitely seen some movement with regards to that. And I think, you know, often for 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 people you know, with HIV, when we start a relationship with someone, telling someone about our HIV status can be can be challenging. And um, I think as we have more information, and I think one of the most powerful things in terms of dealing with with stigma or perceived stigma is actually getting the you equals you message out there. The fact that people on effective treatment, it's impossible to pass on HIV to their sexual partners and I think that that can really help you know um, with perceived stigma if you think that people know about that. Mm, 100% and I know that you work a lot with um, other people living with HIV does this conversation come up a lot because I know it does in my clinic people say I don't know how to tell my partner or you know when do I tell them Um, and and I always say I mean I've 
unless you can correct me. I think it's very individualised. It depends on that situation. Um, but have you got any good tips for any doctors or nurses listening on how to answer those kind of questions? Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right, Naomi. I think it's really personalised. It's really up to the individual in terms of when they tell and who they tell. And and also, I think certainly in England, um, I think sometimes people are worried about, you know, if they don't tell someone, you know, they potentially could face like legal issues. But but the the reality is the law in in Britain is that you know you you cannot be prosecuted if there is no transmission of HIV and if you have a undetectable viral load you can't pass on HIV. So I, I think it's it's really up to the in, individual in terms of who they tell and when they tell. But um, I think. Uh, I think for me, one thing that, that can help is actually getting a little bit of information out about HIV in the first place. So perhaps um, starting a, a conversation about the fact that, you know, telling a, a potential sexual partner about the U equals U message, I think can be um, can be really helpful. When you tell people that, that can actually really help. And, and just choosing the... Uh, the right moment. I know for some people, they prefer to say, you know, straight away um, about their HIV status. And for many people, that works well. For other people, they may prefer to hold on a little bit until they perhaps trust their sexual partner um, a little bit more in, in terms of saying. So it's very much up to up to the individual. And I think as well, just from kind of observation of my cohort, is it if you if their internalized stigma is reduced that then makes it easier i think to deal with the perceived so if giving our patients as much information as possible and revisiting information as well so you know not thinking everybody remembers what you said in the first few clinics even years down the line going back over things like the u equals u message i think that can really help to reduce internal stigma so self stigmatizing behaviours and then I think that helps with the perceived stigma yeah absolutely and I think very often when people are first diagnosed you know we're given so much information that it can be a little bit overwhelming so perhaps a doctor may tell their patient about you equals you but then they're probably that their minds are probably just swimming all over the place so um so I think it, it's really good to revisit it and I think as well, I, I've heard of some doctors actually choosing not to tell all of their patients about the U equals U um, message. And, I, you know, I, and luckily, I think that that's not happening so much. But I think knowledge is absolutely key and everyone has a right to to understand about that. A hundred percent. And I think because I think, um, well, initially Beaver, the, the statement was a little bit wishy-washy, wasn't it? When it first came out, there was a negligible risk. And I think um, my beautiful work wife, Nadi Gupta, um, did an audit on, you know, knowledge about the U because you campaign. I think that made a massive difference. So, again, it's about it's not just about educating patients, it's about educating each other, isn't it? And making sure we're all singing from the same song sheet. But revisiting these issues, even in our patients who we may have been seeing for 10 years or so, not not forgetting about 
revisiting. I think, you know, these issues that are going to possibly still hang around for a long time, but hopefully will carry on reducing. Susan, tell me, have there been any stories of real stigma that you can share either from yourself or from patients, especially when we're thinking about other healthcare professionals? Because I think within our within HIV physicians, hopefully we're non-stigmatizing. Um, but I know that definitely dealing with other healthcare professionals, a lot of patients come across stigmatizing views, obviously from lack of knowledge. Absolutely. And, and, and I agree. I think people with HIV are, are more likely to experience stigma in healthcare settings than, than anywhere else. Obviously, you know, not in terms of HIV clinicians, but certainly in terms of seeing other healthcare um, professionals. And as many of us get older, we're more likely to experience comorbidities and, and need to see um, other, uh, other health professionals. I mean, for me, um, I, I've been quite fortunate, but um, one experience that sort of like sticks in my mind was uh, when I had breast cancer um, uh, about, about nine years ago. I, I saw an oncologist and he was asking me, I, I felt, you know, questions that just weren't relevant in terms of, you know, um, how I got HIV and what I was doing to make sure I wasn't passing it on to other people. And then also when I was going for a blood test, he wrote HIV positive, high risk and circled it. And, you know, I, I thought that was just like totally inappropriate. And I complained and I changed hospitals. But for, for many people, you know, when we experience that kind of stigma, it's at a time when we're at our most vulnerable. So it can be quite difficult to speak up. And, and many of the, the people that I, I speak with, particularly from migrant communities, have experienced some really harrowing um, types of stigma in, in healthcare settings but I think you know often they they face intersecting forms of um, stigma and discrimination and it can be harder um, to speak up when they face this. Yeah and obviously you know we, we mustn't forget that lots of groups of people living with HIV also had added added stigma from sexuality or um, race etc etc so again it, it's difficult I guess to tease out why somebody might be being treated differently. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a story that someone shared with me recently was um, uh, a, a black woman from a migrant community living with HIV who is incredibly knowledgeable and she saw her GP. She's been on um, antidepressants through the pandemic. I think many of us have struggled with our mental health through the pandemic, but she was starting to feel um, a little bit better and um, raised with her GP about the possibility of, of coming off of her antidepressants. And her GP said to her, well, you do realise that you, know, you black women are much more likely to have serious mental health problems. And if you come off your medication, you know, you might end up being sectioned and you might have your children taking in, taken away and put into care. So, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that. I mean, how absolutely appalling is it that doctors are, are saying things like this in the UK in 2022? That's a tough one. I know 
only really recently when I when I started at the hospital I work at now, you know, people were double gloving and putting people living with HIV in side rooms or at the end of the list and things like that. So we and again, all these things have been changed over the last five years. So I think we're progressing, but I think it's really important for anyone listening to this who works in any form of education is that get into the ground rounds, teach medical students, teach GPs, you know, keep educating other healthcare professionals on the U equals U message, on the great prognosis. And also I think language as well. I think we need to be teaching other healthcare professionals how to talk sensitively um, I know I, when we were discussing the podcast, I was uh, reprimanded, should we say, for using the word, you know, have you disclosed your status? And one of my patients very rightly brought up and said, why are you using a legal term when it's just about telling someone something? And I was like, oh, good God, yeah, of course. So again, it's, it's little things like that. And and I think as, you know, we need to be educated by patients as well as each other. But I mean, language has come up a lot in these podcasts and I mean, there's some great resources now, aren't there, to help us and others know how to discuss these things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I can be guilty of that as well. I do try to make a conscious effort not to say disclose about HIV, but having worked in HIV for many years and, and having said that for, for many years, it's like changing the mindset. But um, one of my colleagues, Angelina Namiba, often says you know there's there's no, no usually there's no good diswords you know like disgust discrimination disclose the only good disword is disco oh I like that <laughs> so I think yeah telling is definitely better and it just I think it really it, it takes away some of the stigma because when you talk about disclosing it's like it's a a, a, like a shameful negative thing that you're trying to say when reality you know you you won't say that like like for instance if you have diabetes you won't say you know I've got I've got something to disclose to you I've got diabetes you just you, you wouldn't consider or, or something like that or asthma or something like that so we just really need to really move away from that mindset and even cancer, we wouldn't say I've got to disclose my cancer. You know, it's totally it, right. It's totally ridiculous. We wouldn't say that in any other any other health sort of problem. And again, I mean, you know, I've still got people who um, haven't ever told anybody their status. And again, because human beings are very nosy, aren't we? And the first thing, so if you had breast cancer, for example, well, you did, Susan. So, you know, you hopefully had lots of support and you told people freely. Whereas if you say oh I've, I've been diagnosed with HIV the first thing people say is where did you get that from how did you get that and it, it's almost that ridiculous mindset and again I think that the the media in the 80s early 90s has a lot to blame for how we see HIV and there hasn't been that rebalance has there there hasn't been that resetting although I think um I think it's starting to happen. I know Bash has just brought out a little video clip that they're wanting people to share, which is totally amazing. If you haven't seen it, it'll be on the Bash website for people to share on social media and, you know, get things on the telly. And, um, and you know, so I did a piece with uh, Gareth Thomas on Steph's Pat Lunch, which, again, these kind of things are things that are really powerful. And we need more people, don't we, standing up there and, like Gareth Thomas, saying, well, I'm a HIV 
positive and proud and and healthy but his story is one of of being forced to do that he didn't do that well he didn't want to to have that role I don't think so he's sort of been forced into it which is terribly sad but reporters were going to tell his parents about his status so he was then forced into telling them and then you know it came out to the world but again that wouldn't happen with diabetes or cancer or you know, no one would care would they who cares no absolutely and and also I think you know in reality, we have to remember as well that we often think that, you know, someone may not tell other people about their HIV status because they are stigmatised. But we also need to recognise that for some people, they just don't want to because they're private people. You know, you, you don't feel that way. Well, you don't think, oh, actually, you know, I, I need to I need to go on the telly or I need to like tell everyone that I've got asthma or, or something like that. <laughs> I wouldn't be like, get off, you're boring. <laughs> There's no salacious gossip in asthma, is there? <laughs> it, it's, um, it, it, it's a personal thing. And, you know, for, for many people, talking about your status with other people can be really liberating. Um, but for other people, I absolutely understand. It's, a, it's very much a personal decision. You know, they, they may later on choose to tell more people or they may never want to tell anyone. And that's absolutely their right. And we, we need to respect that. And, and also, I think it's important to remember as well, um, particularly for, for women with HIV, we are disproportionately affected by gender-based violence. And often women experience violence um, when they talk about their um, HIV status to sexual partners. I've heard of a number of women who have been told by their partners that actually, you know, no man is going to want you now because you have HIV and you have to stay with me and, and put up with uh, whatever because, you know, somehow you're, 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 you're less worthy because you have HIV. And I, I've even heard of, you know, women facing you know, really harrowing physical violence because of their HIV status. And so me, I, I, I'm conscious of my privilege um, as a, I'm, I'm a black British woman, but I'm, you know, I, I have like quite economic um, advantages over perhaps some other women from, from migrant communities. So I am buffered to an extent, but particularly women who perhaps face worse intersecting forms of stigma, discrimination and disadvantage, talking about their status can cause um, more problems for them. And again, I think that's why peer support is so essential for women looking after women and, you know, being somewhere, someone that they can talk to, say things to that maybe they don't want to tell the doctor. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think peer support is absolutely key um for particularly for, for women living with HIV and and as you say sometimes it can be hard to share other non-medical concerns with your your doctor but very often it's the other things that are happening in people's lives that they share in peer support and in the sessions that I run um and and people 
share things with me and they say, oh, actually, I, I haven't told my, my doctor this and, you know, we don't really have time to discuss this with my doctor. But often it's the other issues that are happening in people's lives that also can impact on their physical health. So I think it's really important that people know that, you know, doctors want to know about the other things that are happening that potentially and can be impacting on their lives. And it's things like, you know, I, I've heard of spoken to some women who um, aren't taking their medication because, you know, they, they, they're they just like so concerned about immigration problems that they're facing or other things that are happening in their life and, and looking after their health sort of like drops down in terms of their their list of priorities. So I, I do think, I think perhaps that's something that doctors maybe can get a little bit better at is actually asking their patients about, you know, what else is happening in your life and how are you more widely perhaps? And interesting, that's another theme that's come out across all the all the podcasts is actually just to be a bit more holistic and ask more questions about the social circumstances and you know love life all all those kind of all those the bits that matter to people yeah absolutely and I think that for for many of us we have really fantastic relationships with our our HIV doctors and there's a great deal of trust and and for me I I genuinely feel that I I I may not have survived um, breast cancer if it wasn't for my HIV doctor because um, I was doing a, a consultation and I'd spoken to her about having a lump and you know she insisted that I went and I had a, a mammogram and a biopsy and it was um, six months later when I went back and I saw her and she said also you know I heard that everything was okay with your tests, but, you know, how are things? And I said, oh, yeah, it's all fine. I mean, I've got a bit of a rash where I had the biopsy, but I'm sure it's all okay. And she said, oh, that doesn't sound right. And she had another feel. And she insisted that I I went back and I thought, oh, God, she's just fussing. But, you know, I said that I would go. And then when I went back, I actually found that I, um, when they did the biopsy, they'd actually gone into a cyst rather than into the cancer and I had uh, a five inch tumour all around and it was triple negative breast cancer so one of the most aggressive sorts so I think it, one of the, the good things about living with HIV is that we are, we are monitored a lot more perhaps and these things can be picked up but having that relationship with my doctor I think really saved my life. Oh, well, I want to thank your doctor as well, because you are a wonderful woman to still have on this earth. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, Susan, I could talk to you all day. In fact, we we have often talked all day, Um, but let's try and wrap this up and try and give some top tips for anybody listening about what we can do to make this situation better. I I would say, particularly if... uh, healthcare professionals are listening um i think the first thing is to actually recognize that we all get things wrong sometimes we don't know everything and to to own that and actually recognize the importance of constantly learning more um it was fantastic that that you admitted that you know sometimes you your language may not be right and and patients may um 
bring that up but I think that's what we need to do we need to be conscious of perhaps of the um, misinformation that we may still have or perhaps the biases that we have and actually challenge that within ourselves and and to grow and I think the most important thing in terms of information about HIV that everyone needs to remember is that HIV has really changed. Um, I think all healthcare professionals need to recognise that people with HIV can expect to live as long as anyone else, that women with HIV can have children born free of HIV. It's impossible to pass HIV on sexually if you're on effective treatment, but to remember that stigma continues to affect the lives of people living with HIV. And we also need to recognise that there are people around the world who still do not have access to treatment. 670,000 people died of AIDS-related causes in, in 2018. And the U equals U message is absolutely fantastic, but we need to ensure that everyone around the world um, regardless of where they live and who they love can can benefit from the fantastic scientific advances. Oh, 100% agree with that. And I think from, I, I'm, I mean, I'm passionate about education and I want everyone to be, you know, going on as well as about driver chinas, which is my favourite. <laughs> but chatting about, you know, you because you and, and HIV to our medical colleagues and to the public and whenever we can, bringing this up and busting myths, I suppose. And I think we've got a job to do that for the benefit of our patients as medical professionals. Yeah, absolutely. So Susan, where can we find you? Where can we find all your clever bits and bobs and stuff that you do? So I would say go to the aidsmap.com website for all the information about HIV, um, all of our fabulous broadcasts are on there including with you Naomi talking about sex and HIV but there's there's lots of information in a variety of formats on the AIDS map website and also if you want to check out the stuff that I'm doing you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Susan Cole Haley. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, it's as I said, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of HIV in Focus. If you enjoyed it, do tune in to one of our other episodes from the series. HIV in Focus has been created and fully funded by Gilead Sciences. <laughs>